church, if you believe it today, can you bless the Lord? Amen. Somebody shout hallelujah if you believe it. the victory. You may be seated in the house of God today. Greet your neighbor if you're not scared to do so. Otherwise, keep distance as much as you need. We love you. We welcome you here. Glad to see you. Coming back, visitors, the church is growing. My name is Joe. My wife, Nancy's there meeting a visitor. And uh, we have six kids. We're glad that you're joining with us today. Nancy, you want to wave your hand for everybody? There's my wife, Nancy, if you ever want to say hi to her. Thank you for clapping for her. That's really awesome. She's the best. Not only do we have Bevy and Edme joining with us this Friday at 7 in the morning, I hope you all will be here at 7 in the morning. The registration already closed at 300, so if you're here and you're now just hearing about it, you can't even register. Just show up and we'll find a place for you. I'm hoping for a great turnout. Some people might get scared, but come prepared. And if anything happens that you don't like, you're free to walk away, okay? You're free to walk away. But I want to stand on the front line with those two prophetesses, amen? I want to stand on the front line with them. I've stood on the front line without them, and I've done it, uh, you know, watching them. I can't wait to stand with them in Jesus' name. And so it's going to be amazing. But today there is a revival or riot meeting. TJ, would you raise your hand? They'll clap for you. They're meeting at 4 o'clock at Pulaski in Madison. So come prepared to preach the gospel. From the south side to the north side, west, east side, suburbs, Jared today was preaching in Elgin. God's doing a great work there in our summer awakening. Come on for the northwest suburbs. Whatever you do, do it with all of your heart and watch what God will do in your life. Bible studies are still meeting. God is doing wonderful things. So just stay in touch with us. Talk to a leader. Let us know how we can serve you as the church is growing. And I do just want to say this. Come early next week because I know it will be overflow and we'll be having a tent with seating outside. So you may have to give up your seating no matter what for our visitors because I know you all would do that, right? Just like at your house, you would be like, hey, have the seat. But just in case you want to come early and see what's going on. Show up a little bit early to either one of those services. Open up your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 6. I'm excited. These are the types of times preachers live for. But before I close out this season, I want to just encourage you with a message on not quitting. And let me just explain to you what I mean by this season. From COVID to BLM, the riots, etc. If you've heard about what we've gone through, you know that we have had to go through some battles. And God has given us His grace and strength and we haven't given up. Some did along the way and we're praying for them to come back. There's no judgment or condemnation. We just want everyone to stay in the calling that God has for them. And so what I feel and I sense in my spirit is that as we come into this conference, we're going to be launched into another season. And some of the things that we've learned in this season, we can't forget. And one of those things that God has taught us is not to give up. As I preach on this today, feel free to make the application to any part of your life, to your, uh, your occupation. If there's something going on in your job and it's hard right now, don't give up. Uh, maybe you're a young person wanting to go to a certain kind of college or to see something happen in your life, do not give up. You're saving for retirement. Do not give up. But today, what I'm going to be specifically talking about when I say don't give up, I'm talking about your calling. I'm talking about your ministerial calling here in the church and what you will do for God as we partner together for his kingdom. Can I get an amen for that? Amen. So Galatians chapter 6, Paul is writing. He's speaking to the church of Galatia, and these are the words that he says. It's going to be up on the screen. These are the important words for all of us today. He says to them, brothers and sisters, come on, if you're a brother or sister, can I hear an amen? Amen. Amen. So he's speaking to the brothers and sisters, and then he says in verse 7, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let me just summarize. Jesus spoke in ultimatums. Paul speaks in ultimatums. So often in the church world, people get offended when pastors speak in ultimatums. Like, you need to do this or you're going to hell. And they go, well, I don't believe in that. And why are you threatening me with hell? Well, Jesus said, unless you repent, you will perish. 
And that's an ultimatum. He also said that wide is the gate that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to everlasting life. So is it any wonder that Paul, an apostle of Christ, preaches just like Christ? So there aren't three options in in the world today. There's only two, the path that leads to the flesh and destruction or the path that leads to the spirit and to eternal life. Now, lest we get confused and think that we're earning the path to eternal life because of the things that we do, Paul in other places has, has spoken very clear that it's by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast that you are saved. And so the path of eternal life is a gift that's given to you freely but it's your choice to stay in that gift and cooperate with that gift and in this illustration to sow seed into the gift that you've been given. So think about your heart now being good ground if you're a Christian and you are to continue to sow the word of God into your heart, into your spirit to reap the benefits of the Holy Spirit and eternal life. How many want eternal life? Amen. But if you sow to the flesh, you will reap destruction. Now understand this, not Neither the devil or God can force you to pick a side. So the devil only assists you in your decision of the flesh. So in other words, if you do not give a place to the devil, the devil cannot make you sow seeds of the flesh. The flesh is what you decide to do, and the devil comes along and paints that flesh to make it look good, paints other people's flesh to look good, so that that fleshly path is awfully tempting. And it's the same thing with God. God gives you the choice to choose him, and then when you choose him, he blesses you, he empowers you, he strengthens you, he guides you on that path, but he is never forcing you. You are a free will creature gifted with volition to make choice, to make a choice and to have the power of choice. And so what choice you make is what you're going to receive in the end. And the Bible's very clear. Sowing is like planting of seed, like a farmer. What you're sowing into is what you're going to reap. And so that we don't get confused and think that if I ever sin, I lose my salvation. That's not the point here. Because the Bible says that in the previous verses in chapter 5, that if you continue in the flesh or you do these things repeatedly, then that's your decision to walk away from Christ. But you will not lose your salvation like my wife loses her, her phone every day and we have to use the iPhone app to get it. I know I'm telling on her, but come on, somebody pray for me. But I'm glad some of you sticking up for her because we do have six kids and there's probably a reason why she has a lot on her mind. But anyways... We don't lose salvation simply because we've sown one deed into the flesh or, or made a mistake. God is quick to forgive us if we're quick to repent. Where the Bible is clear on where the salvation line is crossed is in Hebrews 10.26, which I believe is probably a, a authorship of Paul or at least a sermon that one of his friends wrote down. But in Hebrews 10.26, it says, If we willfully keep on sinning after having received the knowledge of the truth, there therefore remains no more sacrifice for sin but only an expectation of judgment. You're looking at me like you don't believe I quoted it right. Put it up there for them, please, good sir. Hebrews 10, 26. And so the the act of continuing in sin is what breaks fellowship with God, not a sin. So for those of us who are Christians who have maybe been told if you sin, you're going to hell and you need to walk in this constant condemnation, that is not true. The illustration that Paul is giving us is this continuing sowing of the flesh, you're going to reap destruction. Now those of us here who say, man, I like eternal security, pastor. Are you telling me I have to give that up? No, I have eternal security that as long as I'm in Christ, Christ is going to save me eternally. I'll never be lost. No one will snatch uh, me out of his hands. But can I make the choice to go back to sowing things in the flesh. Yes, I can. Let's see if I did a good job. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. And so in in John chapter 15, Jesus talking, he says, you're going to get uh, the scissors one way or the other. One is to prune you. One is to cut you off. He says, if you're in me, and you're bearing good fruit, I'll continually to prune you. Take out that attitude. Take out that bad habit. He's not just throwing you into the fire all of a sudden, but if you refuse the pruning and you want what you want, and that is the flesh, what does he do? He says he'll cut you off and throw you into the fire with everybody else. Judas probably didn't make it to heaven, okay? And and neither did Saul, possibly not even Samson. I know he had a redeeming moment at the end, but we don't know the story of these people's lives because they had tragic, tragic injuries. 
endings. So don't try to go as close to, to the world as you can and still go to heaven. Try to be as close to heaven as you can and still be on this earth. Amen? And yes, God will deal with backsliders. And sometimes people ask me like the old question, how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? They want to ask me, how many sins can I sin and, and still go to heaven? That's not what I'm here to teach you. I'm here to teach you how to go to heaven and bring everybody with you and rebuke the devil. Amen? So I'm not here to make this some type of just get out of jail free card. We should hate sin. We should see what it cost us. And we should desire holiness. And it should be our desire to sow in the spirit. If you got anything out of what I just said, let's get what Paul said again. Whoever sows to please the spirit will reap eternal life. Do you want eternal life? Amen. Now we understand verse 9. Let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we what? Do not give up. One more time, can you say it? If we do not give up. And so there's the key. There's the key. We're not giving up on sowing in the Spirit. No matter how tempted we get to go back to the flesh, no matter how many mistakes we have made along the way, we are not giving up. The old pastor's joke is, is you can quit on Sunday, just come back to work on Monday. And so often we may feel like quitting, but the idea is you don't quit. You quit your quits. You may feel it. You may want to let it out sometimes. You may, you may feel like there is no other option but to back down, to give up, to give in. But God is saying, don't quit. Don't give up. There is a harvest coming. Just like the farmer who's looking at that same ground day after day after day, he has to trust and believe that the sowing, the planting, the watering, the fertilizing will one day bring a harvest. We just passed July, and those who are farmers know that corn should be knee-high in July. I grew up in Indiana, folks. Come on. Cornfields in all directions. And so you get a little bit of encouragement there, but you know it's still not harvest time yet. Along your journey of sowing in the Spirit, you should see some indications of what God is doing. But oftentimes, we've got to wait a while to see the product to be finished. Most of the things in my life that have come from God have not come immediately. There have been immediate blessings, don't get me wrong, and I think we should expect those from time to time. But if you were to talk to most mature Christians, the normative walk of Christianity is a process. Can somebody say a process? It's a process like planting, fertilizing, watering, and harvesting. And so we shouldn't give up because we'll reap a harvest if we don't. Verse 10, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So we're supposed to love our neighbors. We're supposed to treat others as we want to be treated. But first and foremost, we're supposed to make sure that we're doing good to the people in the church and to the local body. Do you see that there? And so you're not supposed to hurt the church. You're not supposed to hurt anybody. But if there's anybody on your list that you're going to hurt, the church should be last. And you're supposed to help everybody, but the first ones you're supposed to make sure are taken care of are in the church. Now, this may mess with some of your, your interpretation, but when you go to Matthew, and I believe it's chapter 25, and Jesus says, what you've done unto the least of these. Everybody heard that before. But what does he qualify? He says, what you've done unto the least of these, my brothers and sisters. And so he talks about going to visit people in jail. He's not just talking about visiting Pookie in jail who got caught on the corner for selling drugs. He's talking about visiting the brother or sister who's in jail because of persecution. The one that's naked, not just because they're on drugs and they're running around naked. No, the one that's naked because they've stolen their clothes and they've stripped them. That's why he qualifies my brothers and sisters. Now, once again, if I go visit my brother or sister in jail, ought I to visit the other one in jail, the, the person who's of the world? If I clothe my brother or sister in Christ, aren't I to also clothe the world who's naked? Absolutely. But we have to understand that even in that parable that people oftentimes use to go out and do random good deeds for others, the first primary focus in Matthew of who his brothers and sisters are, are those who do the will of God. And so we are to prioritize visiting, praying for the underground church that's arrested or the mission field where they're naked and suffering. Even right now in northern Nigeria, they're being heavily persecuted by Muslims. Continue to keep them in prayer and we are to provide for them. Can I hear an amen? And then we do that for others. Let's keep going. Another passage. Not multiple introductions today, but multiple passages, so some teaching before the preaching. If you go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm going to now make the leap to how we are to work and do good. 
So what do we just learn in Galatians? We're to do good, especially for the, the believers and for everybody in the whole world. We're not to give up, and we're to sow in the Spirit. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're given an indication of this present time and how it is similar to the time that Paul was writing. This passage right here is also often taken out of context by those you may know in the Roman Catholic Church when they talk about the priests being virgins and the nuns being virgins. First of all, there's no such position as a priest in the Bible or a nun, so those don't even exist. We're all priests unto the high priest God, a holy people called out to declare the praises of of God. Amen. And there's only one mediation between us and God, the man Christ Jesus. And the nuns, you know, that's great if you want to be a virgin like that, but there's no place where they're commanded to have those kinds of things. They can do that, but there's no place where they're commanded to do that. But here's where they'll take it. Because Paul at this time begins to talk about virgins and how it's good to remain a virgin, and they'll try to stretch it to mean now priests should be virgins, even though the, the first pope, according to them, was Peter, but Peter was married and have kids. It doesn't even make sense. It doesn't follow their, their pattern here, but they'll try to force that in. But let's get the real context of this. What we're going to see, and I want to read it all here so you can get it, not just take my word for it, is Paul is going to address them and their sexuality and their family at a particular time and give them not a command, but his advice, and we're going to tie it together, but let's look at it first in verse 25. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Don't seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. And all the single guys getting upset right now. Paul, verse 28. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And all the married people said amen. And I want to spare you from this. Now, aside from the obvious contradiction that this would cause with the Roman Catholic Church, let's just look at how often even we as Protestants misunderstand this. We think that Paul is just basically saying, at all times, I just want you guys to remain single because marriage comes with a lot of problems. Is that what he says, that this is what we're to do at all times? No, it's during this what? Present crisis. Then people now say that Paul was doing this as a command from the Lord and that we're all supposed to be virgins and eventually we all die out as people, I guess, because there's nobody having kids. So the Christian church just dies out. No, he says it's not a command of the Lord. It's his personal judgment. So as a pastor or leader over a congregation, we as leaders can give you those kind of suggestions as we're serving God with you. We can say, hey, this is what we think's going on. And by the way, that's where we categorize the silencing of women because women in that time at those congregations were disrupting and Paul had the right to set things in order. But here in this congregation, women are, women are not disrupting so they can you know, talk and enjoy the worship service with us and not have to remain silent. So to take this in its context, we now need to look at what is he actually saying? He is saying, this is my judgment, not a command of the Lord. It has to do with the present crisis, and it's not a sin if you go against even what I'm saying and go and get married, but you have to understand there's going to be trouble. What does he mean? Well, they were being persecuted. They were on the run. Their properties were being taken from them. How would you suffer more now being married? Because not only would you die, you would have to watch your spouse die. Why would that then result in more suffering if you have children? Are children a bad thing? No, the Bible says they're blessings of the Lord. He's not going to contradict the scripture that tells us to be fruitful and multiply and to have children in the days of your youth. No, but what he's saying to me, like as a father, Joe, your children, the more you have during this time, you may watch them die. They may be fed to the lions because Christians were being persecuted severely. So the troubles he's talking about there is not the things that married people go through in day-to-day -day situations. The troubles that he's talking about is the trouble of the heart, watching people that you've grown committed to, the ones that you are loving, watching them die and being ripped and torn away from you. Let's keep going because I want to make this personal in just a moment. Verse 29, he says, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. See, now he's clarifying. 
From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it wasn't theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if they were not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Now, notice that he talks about the shortness of the Lord's return. See, some people might point out and be like, ha ha, Paul, you thought Jesus was coming back quickly, but it's been 2,000 years. He still hasn't come back. See, Paul, you're wrong. No. Understand this, Paul believed in the doctrine of imminence, which means all time is short in comparative uh, nature to eternity. We'll be there for millions and billions and billions of years. And the Bible says a day, it's just, here is like a, a, a thousand years here is like a day to the Lord, and a day to the Lord is like a thousand years here. So in comparison, is 2,000 years a short time or a long time? It's very short. So compared to the Lord and all that we're going through, when we get to heaven, we'll look back on all of human history from the cross till now as a short time. But notice what happens in the church when they are in crises and they believe that it's a short time before the Lord comes back. Revival comes. When you look at the American history and the church that, that got birthed out of the Azusa Street Revival, red and yellow, black and white, all precious in his sight, serving under the African-American leader, uh, William Seymour, as God awakened them to the surrounding uh, situations, the crisis of influenza. This was in the early 1900s, the crisis of what would become World War I and II. The Pentecostals launched out of a horse stable there on Azusa Street to all over the world and became the fastest, largest growing movement known in human history. After just 100 years, now there are close to 700 million people that believe the way they were preaching and teaching there. And it wasn't something new and made up. It was just restorative to what had been taught in the book of Acts. And so when we look at the fruit of believing in a crisis bringing us closer to Jesus, it should cause us to want to work harder for the Lord, not less. So even if we're wrong and there's still more time ahead of us, we should look at the diseases of our time, the political corruption of our time, all the wars and rumors of wars of our time, and we should go all in for Jesus. Now, does that mean we have to take vows of celibacy right now? No, because he summarizes right here at the end what the point of what he was saying is. And that is, even right now, if you have a wife, here's the point. Live as if you don't have one. And for a lot of men, that's already easy right now. You need to check in on your wife and your family. Come on. But once again, he's not talking about neglect. What is he saying? He's saying, everybody get this, if you now pull the my wife wants me home, I can't do evangelism card, he's saying, you're not understanding the times are short. If you're pulling the, well, I can't go on the streets with Bevy and Edmay because i got a family to take care of, what happens if I lose my job card? He's saying, no, you can't pull that out. Those who are already married and have families, you can't use that now as your trump card to try to get out of ministry. In this present crisis, that's the life you're living. And so now you've got to lay that down for Jesus. And so too often people give up and they play it all slick saying, but I still got my family to take care of, Pastor. That's why I can't come. I still got to keep, keep care of my job because what if they dox us all? Because they might be taking pictures like they did last time in front of the ninis and then they go to the HR department of your job. Come on. And just like I prophesied that about a, a few months before ninis ever happened, I'm prophesying it again now. Get ready to get doxxed. Get your lawyer ready and tell them a thing or two. Come on. Because if you're just going to back down because they're going to call you out, you better be ready for this. You can't use that now and say, look what I got as a way to not go all in in ministry. Now, does that mean we neglect our family and children? No, that's what Buddha did. Buddha called his family his great ball and chain, the, the hindrance towards him reaching nirvana. They're not the same. So Buddha and Jesus aren't the same. Don't you love how I just bring them in every now and then just for a little licking? That's right. They'll get a little licking here whenever Catholics get it, Buddhists get it. We love them so much, amen? We're talking about you. We love you. My pastor, oh, you're a Buddhist. My pastor loves you. He talks about your Buddha all the time. Just listen to one of these messages. But they're nothing like each other. 
The Bible says that if you don't care, take care of your family, honor them in marriage and in, you know, in parenthood, that you're worse than an infidel. So this is not talking about uh, sacrificing our family on the altar of ministry where we become so busy for Jesus that our kids now hate the church, you know, and we give so much to missions that now they hate missions because they see the missionary and they go, are you the reason why I don't have new clothes anymore because mama keeps giving all the money to missions? Are you the reason? why I can't go out and have fun because I got to do this to look good for everybody. No, we're not talking about that. It's a simple, it's a simple illustration he's giving us. We are in present crisis. The time is short. Y'all who have families, go hard for God and stop using that as an excuse. That's the point of this. Because the next thing he goes, and those who mourn as if they did not. Because you can see people in our church mourning because we've lost some people out of this. Like, oh, man, I feel so bad. Everybody's talking about me. I see what they said about me on Facebook. And God's like, I don't care if you're mourning. You better pretend you're not and get your honey back to church. Just like when you see your kids, they're crying about having to go somewhere. You're like, but you're still going. You can come with the tear in your eye, but you're still going. And then the next one, we're so happy because there are people in this church. I'm ready to ride or die for Jesus, baby. This is the end times. Come on. I'm happy, happy, happy to preach. Oh, all that they say about me only confirms that we're radical on fire. And God says, I don't even care if you're happy about it. Because look at it. He says those who mourn as if you did not. Those who were happy as if you were not. Because both of those are just emotional. God is not waiting for us to check off the box if we're a certain kind of emotion to do this. Well, I'm sad, so I'm going to stay away from ministry for a little while. I'm just hurt by everybody leaving. I'm hurt by what they say about us. I'm hurt by God's not waiting for that. He said, get up and go. Go with the tear in your eye. That's fine. Well, I'm just so happy, 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 and I only go when I'm happy. So if I'm not happy today, I must not go. You know, I'm living by my feelings. God's like, I don't care if you're happy or not. Get your behind out there and do something for me. This is where we have to understand where we don't quit. Because we all have used those excuses, have we not? Even when it came for me bringing out my daughter, because I think there should be a certain age when you introduce them to a vulgar culture. But at the age of 10, God spoke to me right in that back room. And he said, I want you to start bringing your daughter out with you as you go preach. And I made all kinds of excuses just like that. I said, well, God, you know, what if Nancy doesn't want to do it? And, you know, I don't know if she's ready. What if they cuss her out? And I, I made up all these worst-case scenarios of what my biggest fears were. And guess what happened when I went out? My biggest fears came true. It wasn't one of those things like, well, I just thought it would be all like this, and then it didn't happen. No, it actually did happen. That was the most violent day I've had in years and years and years. A guy got in my face, screamed and hollered, knocked over our mic, cussed out everybody. People had to restrain him, and people even checked on my daughter like, hey, little girl, are you okay with this? If that's your daddy, we're trying to help your daddy. You know, but the Lord told me this is what we do. Because, listen, how many of you have known children that died in a car accident? They had a seatbelt on, but they still died. See, God holds life and death in his hands. I don't hold my daughter's life and death in his hands. I can bring my daughter out every day preaching. She gets to live to be 90. But today on the way going home, she could go home and meet Jesus in one car accident. A whole missionary family that we knew about. Mom, dad, three kids, minivan strapped in, everything, car seat, kid seat, all of that. Uh, semi jumped over the, the side of the median, hit them. They all died and went to meet Jesus. So the safest place to be is in the hands of the Lord. Once again, I'm not talking about being reckless, but I'm talking about trusting God. And then the next thing it says, those who buy things like it's not yours to keep. I've had people say, well, pastor, I just bought a house and I really need my job because I got to make these payments. God wouldn't want me to lose my house. Maybe God does want you to lose your house because you're supposed to hold on to it with a loose grip, not a grip like, you can have it all, Jesus. Well, why are you holding on to it so much? Jesus, you can have it all. Why don't, we, why don't we act like we really believe this and loosen up our hands a little bit? The missionaries that came to our church, Gene and Tisa, they said, I know Joe was for real when he came on one of those live podcasts and said, look, I'm willing to lose my boat, my house, my car, and everything. She knows why that means something to me. Why? Because I used to live on Potomac and Lawndale. I only had a station wagon that my parents gave me when my wife and I got married. 20 plus years, I've never had a nice car, never had a boat. But the one year after 20 years of ministry that I saved up and got a boat, that's the year they want to put a camera on me and see what this pastor has. But then this is what I told them. Y'all ain't got nothing on me because you can take it all. It can all burn down. I got Jesus. And the missionary said, oh, I know you're for real now. You're willing to give up the boat and the house and the car. Of course. 
Because I know what I was without those things. Those things don't make me. Jesus makes me. Jesus is my source of blessing. I have a lot of blessings, but Jesus is the blesser. I would rather have him than 10,000 other things because with him, he's always going to take care of me. And, and so now it's like, well, are you willing to do the same thing? You saved up for that motorcycle. You're planning for retirement at 55. What if God said it's going to be 65? You know, God can change it and rearrange it. It's his plan, not ours. And he says, whatever you have, you're not supposed to hold on to it like it's yours. You're just borrowing it. And then the last thing he says is those who use the things of this world, we use them. We have a lot of material things that we use. We're not to be engrossed in them. And once again, we have all of these excuses. When the time is right, why well, I will serve God. You know, you know, we'll make excuses not to serve God until the time is right. Well, I'll serve God when I've gotten my college education, when I've gotten a good job, when I'm a little bit older, when my kids aren't doing, you know, ballerina, gymnastics, baseball, soccer, and all of that. Then they'll come to youth group, and the Bible says, why are you engrossed in it? You ought not to even be engrossed in it. You can use it. Sure, use the little league uh, for your children to develop discipline. But if that little league keeps them out of church, don't be engrossed in it so much. You know, you have to make the right choices in life. Why? Because it's all passing away. Let's go to our last passage today. Are you with me? Two teaching passages. Now we're getting to the preaching. Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4 is going to help tie this all together. So let's summarize what I feel God has put in our heart uh, for today, in my heart to share, for all of us to be encouraged. Number one, we're to sow in the Spirit. We're not to give up. We're going to reap a harvest. Number two, we are to all lay down our lives in this present crisis and do whatever it takes to serve God and make no excuses. Whatever situation we find ourselves in, we're supposed to say, I'm all in for Jesus. What do I think it's going to look like? I think Nehemiah paints a beautiful picture. The Israelites had been in bondage for 70 years. Now they're coming out. They're rebuilding their, their walls of their city so that they can be safe and go back to being an independent people. And they begin to get persecuted. Let's start right there. Verse 15. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. See, that's a big sentence right there. Can we highlight that? Because I know some people in Christianity, the sentence would be like this. When we heard that there were enemies, we quit on God and went back to doing something else at another church we could hide in. It gets quiet when I preach like that, but you all see the verse? See, they knew they had enemies. There was no more like, this is just the church that's just going to be one that can be hidden, no one's going to know about. They're just the one that everybody says something nice about. No, no, no. If you're going to be in Israel at this time, and you're going to be a part of what they're doing, you got enemies. There it is. It's a fact now. You got, and some of you already have them from your family, from your surroundings, from people around you. Because as I've told you in previous sermons, the idea of people going to church and, you be, and them being happy about it, those days have passed, especially churches like this. They're not happy that you come to churches like this. They're not happy that you're hearing the gospel preached like this. And so you need to be aware they have a plot. They're going to bring up your past. They're going to try to tear you down. They're going to try to nitpick you. They're going to argue the Bible but not know the Bible. They're, they're going to try to do anything they can to get you to stop. But what do we need to learn from this passage in, in, in Nehemiah? We're still going to work. I'm still going to work. I'm still showing up here and preaching. You need to keep on preaching. You need to keep on doing your ministry. We need to be here as a city to welcome in the prophetesses this weekend as they come. We need to keep preaching wherever we go, living for God. Like I said, you can apply this to various areas of your life. That would be for another sermon. What I'm trying to get us to do as we step into this new season, which I, be, I believe it's going to be launched by what happens this weekend coming up, we need to understand even if there are enemies against us, we will not stop working for Jesus. So they're going to do their work. Verse, verse 16. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. So you're going to notice right off the beginning, he divides them in half, and he says, you half right here be nothing but soldiers, and the other half, I need you to start doing some work to help rebuild the walls, because we all just can't fight and be out there defending ourselves. We actually have to build the wall. We got to do both at the same time. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. 
Those who carried the materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in another. And each one of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet, he stayed with me. So now notice, they're going to be divided in half. 50% right here, nothing but soldiers. The other half is going to do work. And out of those workers, they're going to be divided in half. Just think 25% and 25%. 25% is going to be working with a sword in one hand and the a plow and something else in the other hand, the other 25%, they're going to have a sword on them, but they're going to have both their hands free for a total of 100%. Does everybody get that? 50%, nothing but swords. 25%, sword and a plow. And the other one, uh, no, no uh, sword in hand, but sword on the side. He said, I got the trumpet man with me. Why is he with him? Because he's going to sound it for battle whenever they see the enemy come. Verse 19. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive. Everybody say, the work is extensive. Somebody say, and it's spread out. Amen. That's what it's going to be like. It's going to be hard. It's going to be spread out. And we're spread out from each other along the wall. But whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So it may be a lot of work going on, boys. It may be spread out. But here's the deal. When you hear that trumpet, I don't care if you're the one with the sword on the side. I don't care if you're the one with the sword and a plow or if you're the one just with the sword and a spear. When you hear that trumpet sound, you come running to the battle because God's going to fight for us. We're going to have a fight on our hands, but we're going to win. Is there anybody here today that says it doesn't matter where God puts me? I'm going to have a sword. And when the battle cries sound, I'm going to be right there because my God is fighting for me. That's where God wants us to be and not quit. We're going to work in the midst of our enemies. He prepares that table before us in the presence of our enemies, and we will work and get the job done. We will not let fear cause us to back down. We will stand up. So verse 21, we continued the work with the half the men holding the spears. From the first light of dawn to the stars came out. At that time, I also said the people have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can service as guards by night and work as workers by day. So they're doing double shifts. Now look at verse 23. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me even took off our clothes. They went to bed in the same clothes they were working in so they could be up at any moment. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. Even when he went for water, he had a weapon on him. See, too many Christians are laying down their swords and they're giving up and they're saying, well, I'm married. Well, I got a nice job. Well, I have a house, but let me ask you something. Does your city have a wall? Because if your city doesn't have a wall, it doesn't matter what job you have. It doesn't matter what wife you have. It doesn't matter what you own. It's going to be taken from you anyways. And so the church has been bamboozled and tricked and lied to. Just be quiet. Say nothing. Sit back here. We'll take care of everything in politics. We'll take care of everything on your job. And they're playing nice right now, not understanding that that is a trick to take away everything that God has for them. But you need to know the plot of your enemy. You need to know that your enemy is plotting you right now. He is watching you, and he's trying to get you to compromise. He wants you to lay down the sword. He's telling you you don't need that wall. Just go back home and hang out with your wife. Just go back to your job. Everything's being okay. But the enemy knows he's going to take our nation. He's going to take our children. Right now there's a battle in the courts between a divorced couple the mother wants the boy to be a girl, go through sex therapy. The boy's only nine years old. The father's doing everything he can to prevent it. And it seems as if the courts now are going to make a landmark decision to side with the mother. That means just in a few years, if one of your children want to be rebellious and become the opposite gender, they can do that. Get taken out of your house. And if you resist, have you arrested? Christians already in European countries have been arrested for doing homeschool. Homeschool. Arrested in European countries. Look it up. Arrested for doing homeschool. The government right now needs us as Christians. And as we scroll down, I have them marked out for you. The three. There's the 50% sword in the hand only. That's going to be the, the majority of us. The other 25 and 25 are going to have to intermingle through the world and be as harmless as, serpent, as, harmless as doves but as wise as serpents. But it doesn't mean you compromise. When Daniel was in Babylon, he didn't let down the sword. He still had it on him. And whenever a situation came up, he just pulled it out. 
I don't worship another God. I won't eat your unclean food. (laughs) You may be in a situation right now where you can't do what I'm doing now. See, for most of my life, I will admit to you, I've been sword only. I have tried to have a side gig, even like Uber, but during those times I go to preaching and they give me a one star anyway. But I understand some of you got to keep doing what you're doing. And there are some that maybe you're going to work 50, 60, 70 hours a week to build a strong family, community, be a giver and generous person in the church, and we need you to do that. But we need you to keep that sword on your side. Some people want to be slick and say, well, I won't be one of those people with the sword on the slide, uh, Pastor Joe, as I uh, slide over here. I'm going to keep it on my side as I slide out this church. But how come the church you go to ain't never sound the trumpet alarm? Why does that church never sound a trumpet alarm? They don't preach at the high schools. They don't preach at the inner city. They don't preach at Belmont and Clark. They don't say nothing about COVID. They say wear a mask. Next thing they're going to say is take a chip. The Bible says if the days weren't short and even the elect would be deceived. I've got friends that I went to seminary with, man, that are already being deceived. I've seen it happen, my friends. It's going to only get worse. So here's the permission that you have in this church. And I want to say this as your loving pastor. You have permission to work out between you and God wherever you are right now. Because if we all just held a sword only, then we can't pay the electric bill. There's nobody else working But then there has to be people that work but are also committed to the ministry and they open up their homes and they get trained for Bible studies and they do youth ministry and they get on a level where you really can't tell the difference between them and the soldier but they have their their feet in both places. They're, They're working and they're producing and they're also in the church and they're serving. And then there are others, and I'm telling you, I'm okay with it as a pastor. If you're like, man, I am working my way up through Apple. I am doing this strategically so that I can have a place in Silicon Valley or to be an entrepreneur, so forth and so on, and I got to keep my sword on the side and work with both my hands, I got you. But if a Nini's Deli situation happens with you, you better be ready to pull out that sword and say John 3.16 is what it's all about. And if this is my last day here, I better tell you what God brought me here for. He brought me to show you what it was like for me to get fired I preach the gospel on my way out of this place. Because no matter what, you got your sword. And you and I are going to work together. And I can even say in in your life, you may transition from one to the other. My dad was a, a businessman, invested in his own business for years. And it was like he had a sword in one hand and he had his job in the other. And God was blessing him and faithful. But then when he retired, God said he refired him and said, now that you don't have to worry about your customers and the finances you've saved up, I want you to go all in and start a church. And he did in his retirement community. And he's preaching all over the place, even in skater parks and all of that. Because God may shift you from one to the other. And we have to be willing to do it and give each other grace. And so if we're looking for some type of lingo to to have as we move forward from this season, when we hear people talking about their job or their blessing that they received, we just need to ask them, you still got your sword though, right? You still got your sword? Amen. I still got my sword as God is promoting me. Amen. And then those who have their hand on the battle, uh, you know, hand on the sword and they're they're in the battle like like the the warrior class right here, we're going to say to them, man, you ain't forgetting about us, right? You're still praying for us. You're still living us up because not everybody can just wake up and pray every day. Somebody got to deal with the customer that got an attitude. Amen. Because I can make Christianity look real good while I'm getting paid nine to five to, to be in the church. It's a whole nother thing when you got a different kind of job with different kinds of attitudes, religions, and spirits, and all kinds of things in your world. And so we who are holding the sword got to get your back and be like, man, I'm praying for you, brother. I'm praying for you, sister. You're just as important to this. Because if we keep fighting, we don't have a wall. Do you get that? We don't have a wall. If, if, if some of you all ain't teachers, then we're going to lose the public school system. If some of you are in business owners, then we're going to lose all of the economics. And then we will just be like the Amish living on the land somewhere, you know, being on a commune, you know, wearing what we sow. We, we have to look at the Israelites and go, man, God gave them a strategy. Half of you are going to be right here as soldiers. The other 25%, you're going to have your foot in one place and the other. You know, this is not compromise because you, you're just where you're supposed to be. And the other one, we're going to have you go all in on this so that we can all have the goal be accomplished, which is we're fighting and we're building and we're victorious. And so I would say this to anybody that has already quit, come back and find your place here and we'll support you. And as God is dealing with you, you can ask us to pray for you. But we don't want to force you to, any, to be anything. We want you to be who God called you to be. And I want everyone here to give each other permission to work through the process with their family.
Because maybe right now just coming on Sundays is a big deal for you. Going to the life group, it feels like your family will fall apart. Well, we want to be patient with you. Maybe the closest one to you is still pretty far. We want to help you with that. We don't want you to feel condemnation. But don't get upset with us if we're holding you accountable to something that you believe God called you here for. Like, did God call you here to carry your sword and get involved in some way? I believe he did. And if he did that, then he's going to give you the strength. Can I hear an amen? Can we bless the Lord as we stand up, his mighty warriors? Band and altar workers, would you come, please? I want to end a little bit early today because I want us to pray over ourselves this scripture in closing because I know what it's like to feel like in ministry, I'm burning out or I'm giving too much to one thing and not to my family. And God pulls me back and says, listen, I got a balance here for you. And I've watched people in this church work great jobs and do great ministry. I just want us all to know where we're supposed to be. The prophet Isaiah says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. Put that into our situation right now. God's not going to grow tired. And as you and I keep preaching and teaching and leading our families, he'll give us his strength. That's what the Bible's telling us, is don't you know God doesn't get tired? So if we're getting discouraged... Either God is wanting to change our attitude or change our schedule, but he doesn't want us to use his calling on our lives as an excuse for our tiredness. Because even Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my load is light. Some of the seasons of my life where I was the most busiest in ministry, I felt the most rest. Why is that? Because it was God's schedule. God's schedule. Then there were other times, on the flip side, I was doing the least, but I felt the most tired because I wasn't relying on God's strength. I was like, oh, man, not a lot going on in the church these next couple of months. I'm just going to coast a little bit, do what I normally do. And then God's like, oh, you don't need me now? You don't need to rely on me in the prayer times anymore? Well, I'm going to show you what that feels like. And all of a sudden, I'm tired, you know, like lethargic. And God's showing me, it's because you're not relying on me on good days, bad days, busy days, slow days. So he says, God will not grow tired or weary. His understanding, no one can fathom. How about this? This is what God basically said to us. I'm going to bring in more African-American people to Metro Praise at one time than I've ever done before. And I'm like, that's awesome, God. He said, at the same time, I'm going to have more African-American people hate you than have ever hated you before. Are you listening? But who can, who can fathom? Who can fathom what God's up to? I'm going to bring in more families at one time than ever before from the African-American community. Do you want that? Yes, Lord, I want it. Well, here's the other stuff that's going to come with it. Amen. How about this? The same thing. I'm going to bring you more attention to this church. I'm going to put my church on more attention than Metro Praise has ever had before. Do you want them to see you on the 6 o'clock news? Do you want? Yes, Lord, bring attention to our church. At the same time, they're going to hate you more than they have ever hated you before. Who can fathom that? What's going on there? Looks like a man is dying. But what's really happening? Salvation of the world. How do you see the cross? How do you see your trials? How do you see what's happening? There's a purpose in the pain because there's a process that God is doing that would not be complete without the pain. See, once we sinned and brought the curse of sin and death upon us, our flesh is now weak and it must be disciplined through pain. We see that in every stage of our life, pain through childbirth, pain through physical growth, my children, growth pains, pain as you work out and begin to exercise, pain as you study. Pain is now a part of the process. That's the purpose. But the purpose isn't just for the pain. The purpose is for the glory, the good that comes up after it. But it's a part of it. Amen? Now watch this. He says he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. How many times did Paul tell you what he was going through? And you just read it and you're like, oh dear God, Paul, I'm putting you into the prayer box today. 
He's been beaten. He's been shipwrecked. He's been used. He's been abused. But what does he say after that? In my weakness, Christ's strength is made perfect because his grace is sufficient for me. So it says, man, you're tired, but he gives you strength. So how do you know you're a candidate for strength when you're tired? That's when you're a candidate for strength. How do you know you're a candidate for the power of God when you're weak? Because when you think you got it all together, God is not filling what you say is full. God is waiting for the person to hand, hand him the empty cup and he says, be filled, be filled, be filled. And I love this part right here because I used to be just like you guys. Young, skinny, no gray hair, no wrinkles. And I thank God you're giving the days of your youth to the Lord. Because you're going to see God do great and mighty things. But let me tell you, even you're going to get tired. What did it take for me to break down New Orleans? 90 degrees in jeans because we didn't wear shorts. Now that I've been free, I've never gone back. That's why I wear shorts. Why do you wear shorts, Pastor? Because it's hot. That's why I wear shorts. New Orleans, 90 degrees, wearing pants, looking holy, putting up a tent. How many people? Two people to put up a 100-person tent caught a heat stroke. And what did God say to me? What are you doing? Drink water, start eating. You can wear shorts. Seriously. Because the Bible says even the youths grow tired and weary. Even you'll think, man, I'll go hard for Jesus. I'll never give up. I'll never feel tired. I'm so young. Look at me. The Bible says even the youths will grow tired and weary. And young men will stumble and fall. Where's the secret then? Those who wait and hope on the Lord. They will renew their strength. So I'm old, but I'm strong. Why? Because I'm waiting. I'm hoping in Jesus today. I'm putting my trust in God today. It says they will renew their strength. They will soar on the wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. So who is the promise for? The promise is for those who got the sword next to them or on them or with them. The promise is for those who are sowing in the spirit, those who are doing good to all believers, to the world and doing all that God called them to do. The promise is for those who even get tired and weary and even the old. For all who call upon him, for all who wait, he says, I'm going to renew your strength. So can you raise up your hands with me today as a sign of surrender and say, I'm weak, but you're strong. I'm powerless, but you have power. Now pray it over your situations. Des, would you sing this out in whatever prophetic unction you have, please, this passage.